You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On Thursday, Northern Ireland goes to the polls, with the future of the Stormont Assembly hanging in the balance. And if the pollsters are correct, we could be about to witness a political earthquake as Sinn Féin looks set to make history. There's a sense in the air here that the ground is moving under our feet now. Something is changing. In this episode, we'll look at how Sinn Féin, which was historically seen as the political wing of the IRA, could be about to sweep to power on both sides of the Irish border and what that might mean. The balance of power has shifted um, and that is an irreversible shift. Uh, I'm not going to contemplate that outcome. That presupposes that Sinn Féin are going to win. Sinn Féin's prioritising of an early referendum on a united Ireland could rock the boat. I think we are on, on, on the road to the United Kingdom kind of breaking up. It will not be a united Ireland in my lifetime or my children's lifetime. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, from protest to power, how the new Sinn Féin could reshape Irish politics. For 30 years, Northern Ireland lived in the shadow of the Troubles, which pitted Catholic nationalists who wanted independence from the United Kingdom against the majority, the Protestant Unionists. It was to become a bloody, low-level civil war in which more than 3,500 people on all sides were killed and generations lived their lives in fear. Back then, in the Troubles, Sinn Féin was synonymous with the IRA and their campaign of terror. So would an electoral victory now for the party begin a new chapter in Irish history? Or could there be more trouble ahead? I'm Justine McCarthy. I'm a columnist and political correspondent with the Sunday Times Ireland edition. Justine is our guide to this pivotal moment in Stormont, having spent much of her career documenting the ins and outs of Irish politics. I've been covering Northern Ireland since the 1980s as a, needless to say, very young reporter. That's quite a a sweep of time with 
some dramatic changes that have taken place over that period. So take me to a recent interview you did with Michelle O'Neill, the vice president of Sinn Féin. What was it like going to meet her, given that you've been covering Northern Ireland since the 80s and Sinn Féin has come a long way since then? Tell us what it was like. Well, I was really keen to meet her. She would be somebody who's very familiar to people in the Republic as a media figure. We're used to seeing her on our television screens and in our newspapers. But we wouldn't know an awful lot about her, what makes her tick and her background. The reason I really was personally curious was because she is the first Sinn Féin leader in Northern Ireland who was not involved in the Troubles herself. She would be pretty much post-Troubles generation. She was age 21 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. So her political activity would be very much based in the period of peace in Northern Ireland. Yet her own family is steeped in the history of Irish republicanism. Her father had been interned in Northern Ireland. She had an uncle who was imprisoned and another uncle who was the president of NORAID, which was the organisation in America that helped to fund IRA activities. And then she had two second cousins. They were first cousins of her father who were shot one of them was shot fatally while he was on what the IRA called active service in 1991 in an SAS ambush. It was half past seven this morning when the peace of the village of Coke was shattered by what locals described as up to 10 minutes of rapid gunfire. It ended when the Vauxhall Cavalier with the three IRA men inside burst into flames as it crashed into a parked car outside the home of the local vet. All three have been burnt beyond recognition. A balaclava lies in the roadway. Police say two rifles were recovered at the scene. To me, she's an intriguing person because clearly her upbringing would have been influenced by the Troubles and by her family's history. And yet her whole political life has been immersed in the peace process. And how does that come together now? Does she talk much about her family? How does she present herself as the modern face of Sinn Féin? I was apprehensive doing the interview because I expected her to not speak openly about her own background. Do you mind if we start? Because every every minute's going to be precious, thank you. Um, So I've read an awful lot about your family's history in the IRA, and but I've never seen anything that you've said about it or talked about it. Mm. Would politics have been discussed an awful lot in your home? No, I don't. People often ask me that. It's not something that we sat down as a family and thought, well, you know, what's happening today? But it was all around you. Yeah. You grew up in a society that was in the midst of conflict. And, you know, the behaviour of, you know, the British security forces was all around me. The harassment, the intimidation was all around me. So you grew into those circumstances. Yeah. The fact that my father was taken away and incarcerated, uh, interned, and all those things. So that's your lived experience yeah. as opposed to daddy or mommy sitting down at home and saying, this is how it is. She seems to be able to reconcile it very much in this way, that she believes that nobody went out looking for a fight. 
I asked her, for instance, was IRA action justified? Was the conflict justified? Her answer to that was that this was something visited on people, that it was a response to the state that had been created, predicated on discrimination against Catholics. So she she's a woman who has clearly, for herself, put out her whole rationale. It is conjectured from time to time that both Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou MacDonald, the president of Sinn Féin, who's the leader of the opposition in the House of Parliament in Dublin, that they are being dictated to by older, primarily male figures behind the scenes, and that this is part of the strategy to have these two women who can appeal to the post-Troubles generations and across the divide of the Troubles as well. And do you think there's some truth in that? Are, Are they the acceptable face with other people pulling the strings? I think their arrival in the leadership is a natural progression. I think there is a genuine evolution, a generational evolution happening in that party. So this evolution has happened on both sides of the border. In the north, led by Michelle O'Neill, The result of the poll on the 5th of May could see the party become the largest in Northern Ireland for the first time and in line to take the post of First Minister. And in the South, led by Mary Lou Macdonald. Although their election is still a few years off, Sinn Féin is storming ahead in the polls. This election is about much more than storming for Sinn Féin. A good result could drive his campaign to become the largest party across the island of Ireland and to lead the government on both sides of the border. We could have the extraordinary situation just a quarter of a century since the Good Friday Agreement was signed that we would have a Sinn Féin Taoiseach and government in Dublin and a Sinn Féin First Minister in Stormont. That is remarkable. It seems quite a fast turnaround. Just to understand what a remarkable moment this is, given Sinn Féin's long history, I suppose we really have to look back into the past and how the party first came about. Take us back to the early 1900s. Just paint a picture of what was happening in Ireland and how Sinn Féin emerged. The seeds of Sinn Féin were set with the Easter Rising in 1916 in Dublin. The Irish took occupation of the general post office in Dublin and other key buildings in the city, but they didn't have the numbers to withstand the British forces. The mistake made by the government in London that time was to execute the leaders of the Rising. The Rising didn't have mass public support in Ireland, but once the execution started taking place, The mood changed utterly. There was great anger. So while Britain was distracted by the Great War, a group of rebels in Ireland, which was under British rule at the time, saw an opportunity to make a bid for independence. And then very soon afterwards, in 1920, we had the War of Independence, 
which ended in the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 1920 and the Republic of Ireland gaining its independence and six counties in Ulster being kept within the United Kingdom. Sinn Féin would have been a very strong political presence in the Republic after that, but there was a split with Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil became the major political party in the South thereafter. And Sinn Féin became a political pariah for mm. succeeding decades. It operated, of course, the policy of abstention, not only from Westminster, but from Dublin. Why was that? Because it didn't recognise the partition of Ireland. So when did that change? When did they start to engage in politics in, in the Republic of Ireland? Really in the 1980s, when I suppose most people wouldn't have been aware of the seedlings of peace talks that were underway privately in Northern Ireland at that stage. Sinn Féin used to have its Ardèche, its annual party convention in Dublin. And Martin McGuinness made what is now seen as a, a landmark speech advocating the abandonment of the position. Martin McGuinness, who we'll hear more about later, was a radical young Sinn Féin activist at the time and a former IRA commander. He'd go on to play a pivotal role in the peace process and in Sinn Féin's evolution into a democratic force in Northern Ireland. We remain alone and isolated on the high altar of abstentionism divorced from the people of the 26 counties and easily dealt with by those who wish to defeat us. And that proposal was carried and it then began building on its presence in Dublin. And in the last general election, it had its biggest success. Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald was welcomed to the Dublin count like a hero. The left-wing nationalists fought a campaign of eye-catching pledges on housing and pensions, which caught the imagination of an electorate crying out for an alternative. It's a big statement of change. It's a statement that uh, people want a different type of government. So it's a remarkable turnaround for Sinn Féin in the Republic of Ireland. They go from not wanting to be a part of politics at all, not even accepting it as being separate from the North, to now being potentially what looks like the next government. They're very much a rising power. What was happening at the same time in the North? What part was Sinn Féin playing during the Troubles? I suppose in the 1970s, there was a failed attempt at some sort of peace talks when Jerry Adams, as a very young man, went to London. And it was uh, pretty much accepted that peace was off the table at that stage. But then in the 1980s, there were the start of talks. But from the outside looking in, nobody knew about this. The violence in Northern Ireland was continuing unabated at that time. In the 80s into the 1990s, there were some really appalling events, some atrocities on both sides of that fight. There was a massacre in a bar at Halloween of Catholic victims. 
There was the Shankill Road bomb where a number of Protestant victims were killed and injured. There was a lot of tit-for-tat bombing and shooting going on at that time. And then, of course, there was this wonderful confluence of events. Individuals came to power in both London and Dublin who were able to work together and had a personal rapport. First of all, John Major, I think, tends to be overlooked his part in it. He and his counterpart in Dublin, Albert Reynolds, had worked previously together and got on very well together. So they were the ones who started with the Downing Street Declaration, which led to the IRA ceasefire in 1994. It closes no doors except the door to violence and illegality. Violence in Northern Ireland had led to walls of wilting flowers and an eternity of tears. If this declaration for peace helps to dry those tears, then we can ask no more. Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern then were able to pick up where Major and Reynolds had left off, and that led to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Coming up... A quarter of a century on from the Good Friday Agreement, if Sinn Féin looks set to win on both sides of the Irish border, could we be looking at a referendum on a united Ireland? We'll hear more after a quick word from my colleagues at Times Radio. This is Stig Abel and Asma Mir. We present The Breakfast Programme on Times Radio every Monday to Thursday from six o'clock. We talk to the leading politicians in the country. We go all around the world. We have a bit of a laugh. We can only do that thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. We've heard how a series of diplomatic breakthroughs in the 80s and 90s led to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, the deal that in effect brought the troubles to an end and consigned the worst of the violence to the past. But what happened to Sinn Féin's relationship with the IRA during this period? How close were they? Sinn Féin was the political wing of the IRA. Jerry Adams was the president of Sinn Féin. He denies that he was ever a member of the IRA. My position has been consistent that I was not a member of the IRA, but I've never distanced myself well, that's the, from the IRA. So, so that's, were you never tempted to join? No, no, I wasn't, no. Martin McGuinness was very senior in Sinn Féin. He did have a conviction at one stage for IRA membership. It is hard to imagine that the peace process could ever have materialised if very senior figures in the IRA did not have some sort of crossover with very senior figures in Sinn Féin, particularly when it came to decommissioning arms, for instance. A lot of people will have forgotten, but you know, up until then, Gerry Adams was somebody you couldn't even hear on TV. His voice had to be dubbed. That's right. Are you saying there's no more that the IRA can say in response I don't to that? Speak speak to the IRA. IRA. I, I, I don't. Sinn Féin can say. Well if, Mr. well, if Mr. Major, as he should be doing anyway, wants to commence discussions with me or people who represent the party which I lead, we will start that immediately. That was Jerry Adams, as he used to sound on the news before the Good Friday Agreement, and this is how he sounded a short while later, after the troubles had ended. Today is an important day, but it's not as important as tomorrow, or the next day, or the day after that, with all of the challenges which they will bring. Today we cleared the way for the future. Tomorrow we start to build the future. The future, my friends, is freedom. Let us build freedom. What's happening within Sinn Féin after the Good Friday Agreement? Because the outside world no longer sees them as uh, an outsider. But internally, they're having to adapt to, to becoming a party with some political power. How do they sort of manage their relationship with the IRA at that stage? I think constant communication. Jerry Adams uttered the famous line early on, the IRA hasn't gone away, you know. I think everybody was always very aware of that and that there was constant tic-tacking between Sinn Féin and the IRA. What helps somebody like Mary Lou MacDonald and somebody like Michelle O'Neill is that those people who were senior in the IRA at that time were strong supporters of the peace process. They more or less staked their reputation on the peace process and they have had to abide by it. They have had to stick with it. And Justine, tell us a bit about how Sinn Féin was managing at the same time 
to become a party at the heart of the power-sharing agreement in Northern Ireland. Tell us a bit about its relationships with the other parties. In particular, tell us about the Chuckle Brothers. That was one of the most amazing, extraordinary (laughs) turnabouts in history of any country. The Chuckle Brothers were Ian Paisley, the founder of the DUP, who used to be almost a figure of fear for many people in the Republic and many nationalists in Northern Ireland. And I say to the Dublin government, Mr. Faulkner says its hands across the border to Dublin. If they don't behave themselves in the south, it will be shots across the border. And uh, the other chuckle brother was Martin McGuinness, who would have been a figure of fear for many loyalists Mm. in Northern Ireland. They found themselves at the head of this new government, the executive in Northern Ireland in Stormont, that was established on foot of the Good Friday Agreement. They had to work together. And boy, did they. They actually became friends. We have had our political squabbles and fights. I think we have come to the end of that. I think that peace has come. Up until the 26th of March this year, Ian Paisley and I never had a conversation about anything. (laughs) Not, Not even about the weather. And now we have worked very closely together over the course of the last seven months and there hasn't been an angry word between us. In the meantime, though, the IRA was gaining a reputation for criminality, the bank robberies, there was all sorts of essentially illegal activity going on. How much was that impacting Sinn Féin? I think that was very damaging to Sinn Féin. There was an awful lot of smuggling going on across the border. You mentioned the banks, the Northern Bank robbery was one of the biggest bank robberies in Europe. And there was a recognition within Sinn Féin that it was going to have to distance itself from the criminality. It effectively did that by pushing those who didn't support the peace process into dissident groups that have taken up that slack. They are the ones now who are associated with criminality more so than the provisional IRA. And I think now we are coming to a new pass where there are more what you might call normal parties coming on the scene. The Green Party, a party called People Before Profit, And of course, the Alliance Party, which has been there a long time, but is really starting to have a very big influence. So there is more variety and choice for voters. And that's going to be very interesting to see how younger people who were never affected by the troubles, are they going to stick with the voting patterns of their parents and grandparents? Or are they going to follow I suppose the rest of Europe and the rest of Ireland, the rest of the United Kingdom, and vote on issues such as saving the environment and prices and the cost of living and housing, as opposed to old tribal divides. So there are huge changes taking place in the north. What's happening with Sinn Féin in the south? Just how likely is it that they will end up in power in the Republic of Ireland? I mean, what, what are polls showing? The polls are showing that if we had a general election now, Sinn Féin would be the biggest party. Right now, Mary Lou Macdonald is being regarded as the next Taoiseach in waiting. 
The election in the South is still a few years away, but on Thursday, Northern Ireland goes to the polls, with Sinn Féin competing against their main unionist rivals, the DUP, as well as the moderate nationalists, the SDLP, the Ulster Unionists, the Alliance Party, the Greens and the traditional Ulster voice. Heading into the election, Sinn Féin has been leading in the opinion polls and at the time of recording, they look set to be the biggest party in Northern Ireland. Which will mean that for the first time, a nationalist party will be the biggest in Stormont. And it will mean that Michelle O'Neill will be the first minister-elect. But because the DUP has not pledged that it will accept the position of deputy first minister, if that should happen, the executive can't be formed under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. And we will be heading for more paralysis. That is alarming. Is there any prospect of the DUP changing its mind on this? I think there is. There's a lot of politics being played at the moment, a lot of manoeuvring going on. The DUP has a new leader in Jeffrey Donaldson, who seemed to be a pragmatic man. The big issue that he has adopted as leader is Brexit and the Irish Protocol. And there it is again. For those of us who haven't been thinking about the Northern Ireland Protocol for at least a few months, here's a quick reminder. As part of the Good Friday Agreement that finally ended the troubles in Northern Ireland, it was agreed that there would be no hard border between the North and the Republic of Ireland in the South. And that was fine. Whilst both sides were in the EU, goods could move about freely, but Brexit changed everything. In the withdrawal agreement that was negotiated afterwards, it was decided that the rules of the EU Customs Union would still apply to Northern Ireland so that goods could carry on moving across the border from north to south. But as Great Britain wasn't sticking to EU rules anymore, that meant putting customs checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, creating a sort of border down the Irish Sea, which is exactly what the DUP and many unionists didn't want. It's not just an economic problem for them, it's ideological. They've spent decades fighting to keep the union, and now there's a customs border cutting right through the United Kingdom. Back in February, the First Minister from the DUP resigned in protest, saying the protocol would threaten Northern Ireland's place within the UK. Now, the leader of the DUP, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, is threatening to pull out of the power-sharing government, if Sinn Féin win, in order to put pressure on Westminster and Brussels to scrap the protocol. His position is that as long as the protocol remains, the DUP will not be taking up deputy first ministership in Stormont. Here he is, the leader of the DUP, speaking to Times Radio in the run-up to the election. We have been consistent in our opposition because we recognise the harm the protocol is doing, not just to the economy of Northern Ireland, but also the political instability. I mean, please show me any other European country that has an internal customs border down the middle of its own country. 
what would a Sinn Féin victory mean for Northern Irish relations with London, uh, and in particular in terms of Brexit? Well, Sinn Féin is in favour of the protocol, but also many unionist voters are in favour of the protocol. They actually see it as having their bread buttered on both sides, you know, having access to both the UK and the EU. It's very interesting that while the Republic of Ireland has benefited enormously from its membership of the EU and from the patronage of the White House in America, especially since the Good Friday Agreement, many business people in Northern Ireland make the point that the North hasn't benefited as economically as the Republic has. I think that Sinn Féin would not want to allow Northern Ireland to be seen as second-class citizen to the Republic. So I think Sinn Féin is going to have to be very proactive in maintaining a good working relationship with London as much as with Brussels and with Washington and with Dublin. There is a lot of concern in the political establishment in Dublin that Sinn Féin's prioritising of an early referendum on a united Ireland could rock the boat and could polarise the North again and could jeopardise the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. Well, the question of reunification is fascinating because obviously, you know, that's been one of the core policies for Sinn Féin ever since the country was divided. If we end up with Sinn Féin in both the north and south of Ireland, how likely is it that we'll see at least a poll for reunification? I think we could see it towards the end of a five-year Sinn Féin-led government. But I don't think that they will walk into government and immediately call a poll. They won't have the power to do that in Northern Ireland. That's up to the Northern Ireland secretary to do that. When opinion polls are conducted on this, the answers Mm. are always very interesting because when the straight question is asked, are you in favour of uniting Ireland? A large majority in the Republic will say yes. A majority in the North of nationalists will say yes. But then you come down through the questions, are you prepared to pay more tax for a united Ireland? Those majorities start declining. That's so interesting. Are you prepared to change your national flag? Are you prepared to have a federal form of government with uh, a branch of government in Belfast? What Sinn Féin will do is, when it gets into government, it will start the conversation that hasn't really got off yet to try and visualise what a prospective United Ireland would look like, what sort of health service we would have, what sort of civil service we would have, what would the cost financially be, what could Britain be expected to pay if Northern Ireland joined the rest of Ireland. And these are huge questions. It's so interesting that the realities of reunification are just so difficult because I suppose also in the last few years we've seen very different social attitudes and cultural attitudes on both sides of the divide too. You know, whereas in in the Republic of Ireland you've you've sort of got gay marriage and, and abortion is sort of acceptable. In the North, that's still problematic it does feel like they've become two very different countries. 
Yeah, I find it strange. When I used to cover the Troubles in the 80s and 90s, and when you drive from the Republic over the border into Northern Ireland, you would go from potholed, narrow country roads in the Republic onto these beautiful silken motorways <laughs> all the way to Belfast. Now it's the other way around. The roads in the Republic are so much better than the North. The atmosphere in the Republic is much more secular it is no longer a predominantly Catholic country. It is a liberal, young, progressive country, whereas Northern Ireland still feels stuck in the divisions of old. You can feel the young people in Northern Ireland want to move on. They want to have proper, decent lives, but they're being held back. There's a sense in the air here that something is changing, that... The ground is moving under our feet now. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, columnist and political correspondent with the Sunday Times' Ireland edition, Justine McCarthy. You can read more of Justine's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Chris Wade. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.